Welcome to Blogs on Tape. Today's post is Two Week Mega Dungeon, written by Nick L.S. Whalen and originally published on his blog Papers and Pencils at paperspencils.com. Two Week Mega Dungeon. I recently committed to running a fresh campaign, which required I construct a mega dungeon from scratch in about two weeks. It was a big job. I was a little worried it was too big to get done in such a short time, but I managed it with days to spare. Some of my players have asked me to explain my methods, and I will endeavor to do so here. Like any other creative project, I've found the best way to accomplish my goals is to lower my expectations. When I say I created a mega dungeon in two weeks, I do not mean that I meticulously crafted some beautiful bespoke adventure module with hundreds of pages of room description. I can barely conceive of how I'd use such a thing at the table, much less how I'd create it. The dungeon I did create fits on seven single-sided sheets of paper, one page of random tables and rules reference, and six pages, each of which have a map and a key for a single level of the dungeon. Even within that drastically limited scope, I only completed my mega dungeon by taking every shortcut I could find. First step was to source maps. There are more freely available maps online than anyone could use in a lifetime. For this project, I went with old reliable Don John's random dungeon generator. With it, I could quickly produce as many maps as I needed. Plus, generating all the maps with the same tool meant they had a consistent style, which is useful for avoiding all sorts of little annoyances that have cropped up in the past when I've tried to force maps from different sources to be part of the same structure. Somewhat arbitrarily, I settled on starting with six levels to the dungeon, my only real reason being that it felt large enough to be a mega dungeon, but small enough not to stress me out when keying it. The magic number 7 plus or minus 2 is probably a factor here. I played around with the generator's settings quite a bit between each level. More densely packed rooms on this one, fewer rooms on that one. This map shaped like a cross, that one is a circle. There's plenty of knobs to tinker with, though I think only three of the settings I used were actually important. First, straight corridors plus remove all dead ends. These settings produce the most direct corridors. Even still, they are more meandering than I would prefer, but beggars can't be choosers. Second, no stairs. This is perhaps a minor point, but I wanted to have direct control over where connections between floors would exist. Third, map style graph paper. This is by far the most important setting. Not only does it waste the least amount of ink when printing, but it leaves a lot of white space available for making notes. Once I'd gotten six maps I liked, I printed paper copies of each so I could easily make alterations and notes. On each level, I added an elevator shaft adjacent to one of the rooms, usually one near the center. One of the most important elements of Mega Dungeon design is that players have direct access from the entrance to many different parts of the dungeon. Otherwise, every single session begins with the party moving through the exact same set of rooms, which can be difficult to prevent from becoming tedious. The elevator shaft means that they have six choices for what their first room will be each session. In a more traditionally themed mega dungeon, a grand staircase would work just as well. Within an hour of starting the project, the bones of the dungeon were assembled. Now, I had about 225 blank rooms to key. That's a lot of opportunities to get tripped up by blank page syndrome, 
so I started by creating some touchstones that would help inform my keying later on. The first and least important of these is the dungeon's origin. Who built it? Why? What calamity caused it to stop being used for its original purpose and become a dungeon? These are all good things for a referee to know, but it's also important not to get caught up in them. A dungeon in a ruined hospital may have a lot of beds and broken medical devices in it, and a dungeon in a ruined school is going to have some books and desks, but that's all filler for empty rooms. The treasures, traps, and creature encounters are going to be derived more from what happened to the structure after it stopped being used for its original purpose. Next step was figuring out tyrants and factions. My six-level dungeon has three wizards and a dragon as its tyrants, because, as we all know, a two is always a dragon and a twelve is always a wizard. These primarily exist as big scary random encounters, but they also need a lair. I placed these by writing directly on the map, aiming to be as evocative as I could. Instead of Merlin the Great's lair, I might write Mirrored Palace of Merlin the Moody. Later on, the personality and style of each tyrant will affect what sorts of rooms are nearby. I use this same style of keying through the process, writing the text directly on the rooms they describe. It limits how much detail they can have, and in particular means small rooms must have more simply described contents than large ones, but these are limitations I can live with. In fact, I'd say this limitation forces me to produce better work than I otherwise would. When I'm running games, I quickly get frustrated whenever the forward momentum of the action is disrupted because I can't find the information I want in a block of text. A few words, or maybe a sentence, is enough for me to construct a shared imaginary space for my players. That's especially true here where I'm writing notes for my own future self. Nobody else needs to understand this dungeon. One major mistake I made here was writing the room keys in pen. I usually prefer to write in pen because it forces me to commit to what I write. I enjoy not being able to go back and change things, and instead be forced to adapt to whatever decisions I've already made. I feel the same way about keying the dungeon, but many room descriptions will need to be altered through the restocking process described below. So for the love of the gods, don't make my mistake. Key your mega dungeon in pencil. Factions are the most important mega-dungeon touchstone. The way different groups interact with the players and with each other is a huge part of what I enjoy about mega-dungeon play. The players will forge alliances with some, go to war with others, play diplomat and negotiate peace between enemies, or convince groups to wipe one another out. Like tyrants, factions control some rooms, influence others, and provide fodder for the encounter table. Coming up with factions is simple. Some kind of creature, plus some kind of distinctive behavior, equals a faction. The boastful bovines are a braggadociously proud community of cow people who live on the first level of the dungeon. I came up with between two and three factions for each floor, recorded the name of each faction using a specific color, and placed colored dots on the map to indicate the center of each faction's power. This is the room where they are most safe to eat and sleep and conduct their private affairs. The colors aren't necessary, but I often want to know what faction the players are most likely to encounter in a given room, so being able to quickly reference which faction is closest is handy. By now, every level of the dungeon has multiple points of interest I can riff from when I'm keying other rooms. There's no reason you couldn't add even more if you like. All mine were social, but you could create all sorts of different touchstones. 
Perhaps one room could be where some tyrant of a faction used to live, and they left traps, treasure, and monsters behind. A portal to hell would make a good touchstone, as would a magic crystal that absorbs all heat, a massive zone of silence, a miniature black hole, really anything that would have a ripple effect across multiple surrounding rooms will help make the keying process easier. There's still one more way we can break the problem down before we start keying in earnest. Broadly speaking, every room in a dungeon will fit into a fairly small number of categories. Some will have creatures in them, some will have traps, some will have really weird stuff, some will have treasures which may or may not be guarded, and most of the rooms will be empty. This last bit may sound counterintuitive, but it's vitally important. In this context, empty doesn't mean a completely bare space. It just means a room without monsters, traps, treasure, or special weirdness. A kitchen would be an empty room, but it would still have pots, pans, cupboards, salt, vinegar, and knives in it. These rooms are important because they are where the action will spill into when the players retreat from battle. Empty rooms are where the players will rest, where they'll devise wild plans for how they'll make use of something that was intended to be set dressing. Empty rooms are where the players will make their own fun. The ancient texts actually advise having 60% empty rooms. 1st edition AD&D DMG Appendix A, Table V, F. I like 50% because... I'm a dense dungeon kind of boy. With my desired ratios in mind, I made this little table to get myself started keying. 1 to 10, empty. 11 to 13, creatures. 14 to 16, creatures with treasure. 17, trap. 18, trap with treasure. 19, something weird. 20, unguarded treasure. Each day, I'd sit down with my maps throw a fistful of d20s, then key one room for each of the results I rolled. If I felt like doing more when I was done, I'd throw the dice again. As I got into the rhythm of things and the map started to fill out, the dice gradually became less important. A few times each day, I'd pull my papers out and spend maybe 20 or 30 minutes writing keys. Whenever I got stuck, I'd pick something, anything, and do some free association. As I write this, there is a water bottle beside me on my desk. Perhaps the dungeon could have a room filled with water. The bottle has trees on it. Maybe there could be a room with a tiny forest or a meticulously cared-for garden. The bottle also has an A on it, sort of like the Scarlet Letter. It could have a room with some prudish creature in it which calls everyone a slut. Just like that, you've got three dungeon rooms from a single object on my desk. You can do this with anything. I've personally got a lot of mileage out of using Magic the Gathering cards for this. I also did a fair amount of stealing room ideas from other dungeons, video games, and blog posts. This dungeon is for private play, not publication, so plagiarism rules don't apply. As I keyed, I jumped all over the six maps. If you haven't already, you should free yourself from the expectation that your Mega Dungeons layout will make logical sense. That's impossible to accomplish and boring to attempt. These are mythic spaces that run on dream logic. If I were to key adjacent spaces one by one, my brain would try and force those rooms to conform to some pattern. My goal is to create a wild network of weirdness first. Then, once that done, I can let my brain off the leash to do its pattern-matching thing. This produces wildly more interesting results for me. All of which is not to say that you should ignore inspiration that comes from referencing nearby rooms. 
That inspiration can be good, and it's why we created the touchstones. Jumping around just helps to avoid a sort of tunnel vision design, where you become bound to obey the logical implications of whatever room just came before. Jumping around is also an easy way to create multi-room problems. You can simply place the blood gate somewhere on level 3, then jump to level 1 and write toilet with the blood key in it on some empty room. In 10 seconds, you've created an adventure that could keep your players busy for a whole session. Once the rooms are all keyed, the dungeon is ready for play. Of course, you'd also need an encounter table, but I have discussed my process for making these elsewhere. The only notable difference here is that I used 2d4 rather than 2d6. The fundamental method remains the same, but the ranges are somewhat compressed. Here's an example of what is produced by this dungeon crafting process. Reader's note. Here in the post is an image of a dungeon level map with roughly 20 rooms. The three indicated factions are the Goblin Boomers, Ninja Slugs, and Jealous Banditos. There is also an example of a 2d4 encounter table written on the sheet. To view this map in full, visit www.paperspencils.com slash 2-week-megadungeon. End of reader's note. If you're looking at this and wondering how anyone could run a good, consistent dungeon crawl from it, remember that the only person who needs to understand it is me. If you made a dungeon with the same process, then the only person who would need to understand it would be you. When I write something like blue chest, difficult lock, two magic spells, and one item, I know that my future self will interpret that in a certain way. A blue chest implies the existence of a blue key somewhere. A difficult lock would mean the lockpicking check is penalized, perhaps by half the value of the sublevel the room is on, so a difficult lock on floor 2 would be at minus 1, a difficult lock on floor 4 would be minus 2, etc. There'd be some random junk in the chest in addition to the treasures, maybe some moth-eaten linen. The two magic spells would be on scrolls, and I'd roll some dice to figure out what spells they were. The magic item would likewise be randomly determined off whatever table is most convenient. I might even ask my players if one of them has a favored magic item table they'd like to roll on. Even so, there is a lot of missing details to the room description, but if they come up, I'll figure them out on the spot. At any given time during play, I'm probably mentally filling in a room's description. A good 40% of my game prep happens while I wait for the players to argue about what they want to do next. There are days when I'm able to do this really well, and days when I'm not. I wish I was always operating at peak performance, but it has to be okay for the game to have bad days, and the longer I run games, the better I get at doing this. My worst sessions these days are still better than the best ones I ran 10 years ago. I think my players mostly come away from my games feeling good about the way they spent their time. That's the important part. A Mega Dungeon is a living space. So even once it's ready for play, it will never really be complete. After each delve, I review the rooms my players visited and consider what changes may result from what they did there. If a player kills a monster and steals its treasure, that room might become empty for a while, or a different creature with different treasure might move in. If they only injured the monster, then perhaps that monster was forced to make an alliance with a nearby faction while it healed. Now, that faction will be ill-disposed towards the players in order to maintain their alliance. If a player character died, their meat might be sold in a cannibal market, or the necromancer three rooms over might raise them as a vampire to go hunt down their former compatriots. 
Restocking like this is how the players get to see their impact on the game world. I don't get the opportunity to be a player very often right now, but when I do play, it's this sort of thing that keeps me coming back to a campaign session after session. In the same vein, I also have a notepad where I record all the seeds my players plant. For example, if the party kills a group of goblins but lets one get away, I'll record the existence of this goblin in my notes. Next time they roll a goblin encounter, I might choose to double the number of attackers and have that escapee leading them in an ambush. If the party funds a troop of musicians, later on the party may go to a bar and discover those same musicians are performing on stage. Or maybe they won't. Some seeds never bear fruit, and that's okay. Simply restocking rooms and noting player seeds takes care of the vast majority of prep work I need to do for future sessions. Eventually, if the game runs for a very long time, or if I get bored, I may expand the dungeon. I've already placed a second elevator shaft somewhere on the bottom-most level, which could eventually lead to another six floors. Smaller expansions might be accomplished by having a wall collapse somewhere to reveal a whole new area beyond it, or some wizard could open a magic portal to a faraway locale. It depends very much on the direction the campaign takes over the coming months. For now, I'm happy to ride the wave of my players throwing themselves at what I've created. I must thank Ava, Anne, and Elias for prompting me to write this. I didn't think I would have a lot to say when they first suggested it, but it got me digging deep and forced me to put words to some concepts I hadn't bothered to articulate before. As it happens, I've been working on another daunting project, a set of D100 tables that would serve as prompts for building better dungeons. It's turning out to be the most substantial project I've ever worked on for Papers and Pencils, but in retrospect, this post will serve as a good introduction. Those tables still need a lot of work, but they'll likely be the next thing posted here. Thanks for reading. I hope everyone is staying safe. Black Lives Matter. That was Two Week Mega Dungeon, written and read for you by Nick L.S. Whalen. Blogs on Tape is a project that works with authors to make great RPG blogs more accessible through audio recordings. Blogs on Tape is a community effort, which you can contribute to by doing all the basic stuff that every podcast asks you to do. You can share the episodes with friends or on social media, or rate and review Blogs on Tape using your podcatcher of choice. And whether or not you have the inclination to participate, thank you very much for listening.